Mark chapter 14, I'm going to begin reading in verse 66. I invite you this morning, if you are able, to stand with me uh, in reverence to God's Word. So we finish chapter 14 of Mark's Gospel. Mark 14, beginning in verse 66. The Bible says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. And he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. You may be seated. If you weren't with us last week, I want to catch you up on where we are in Mark's gospel. We have just, in the last few weeks as we have been going through this, looked at the arrest of Jesus. We looked at his betrayal by Judas and then his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And last week, we looked at the passage that tells us about Jesus' initial trial before the religious leaders. And I told you last week that there is a contrast that is present in this series of passages. Mark gives us that contrast uh, back in verse uh, 54, where Peter, we're introduced to Peter and what he is doing, and then Mark gives us the account of Jesus' arrest, and then brings us back to Peter. What that does is provide us a contrast. These two Things are going on at the same time. The events of verse 53 through 65 are happening simultaneous to the events of verse 66 through 72. And they're meant to provide us this very stark contrast between these two men. We have the perfect example of Jesus when he is confronted by the religious leaders and he stands firm on his commitment to God, he stands firm on his commitment and purpose for which God sent him. And then, in contrast to that, we have Peter, we have his denial, as a matter of fact, we have his three denials. And then we have the ultimate realization of his sin. The reason it's important to understand this within the context of, of a contrast is because Jesus tells us everything and shows us everything that we should do if we want to be true witnesses of God. At the same time, Peter tells us the danger that is evident when we are witnesses to God. Now you would look at this and you would think, well, Peter ultimately, by what he does, he escapes, so isn't he the one that escapes danger? But the reality is that it's Jesus who is safest by being a true witness, where Peter is in the most danger 
with the false witness that he gives about the relationship that he has with Christ. This morning, I want us to understand that it is of the utmost importance that we know that we must be humbled if we want to be a truthful witness to Christ. Now, notice there, I, I did not simply say we must be humble, which we should be, and we must be, but to be humble, we must at some point have been humbled. Because it is not the natural desire of human beings to be humble. It's not. You can watch any type of sporting event or look at uh, celebrities in our culture, whether they be from the entertainment industry, again, athletes, whether they just be simply wealthy and that has made them into a celebrity. If you look at them, you'll find that there is a, a huge lack of humility. They just aren't humble. It's just not, it's not natural. We're made because of our sin, to be very prideful. We see that. Genesis chapter 3, the first sin, it comes from what? You know, we say, well, it comes from eating a fruit or whatever. No, it comes from pride. It comes from a lack of humility. The serpent pushes Adam and Eve, hey, you can know better than God. You, you can do the same things that God does. You know better than God. God said not to eat of this fruit, but that's not really that important. God doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just trying to hold you back. Go ahead, it'll be all right. And so it was pride that Adam and Eve reached out and ate from the fruit of the tree that God had instructed them not to. So this morning as we look at this text and we're thinking about these last two weeks about being a true witness for Christ and a good witness for Christ, we need to understand that being a true and good witness means that at some point we have been humbled. Jesus is the perfect example of how to be a true witness. Peter is the imperfect example and only becomes a true witness for Christ when he is humbled. So let's look, and there's three things this morning that we see here as we think about this idea of being humbled to be a true witness for Christ. First, we see in most of this passage that it is arrogance, it is arrogance that leads to a person's downfall. So Peter is coming to the courtyard, we are introduced to that back in verse 54, and he is in the courtyard and he's by the fire and there is this servant girl who is part of the court of the high priest who looks at him and she kind of witnesses him, she kind of knows who he is, or at least thinks she knows who he is, and she makes this comment, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Now, think about this. Here in, in this courtyard, Peter is, you know, a grown man, and this small girl kind of confronts him. Weren't you with him? Now, Peter is tagged along 
he, he kind of wants to know what's going on. He's, he didn't go with Jesus. He didn't uh, uh, go with the arrest of Jesus. But he has kind of tagged along wanting to, to know what's going on, wanting to know the situation and the status of Jesus. And so he's got himself there in that courtyard for that very purpose. And yet this girl then looks at him and says, you were with him, right? You were, you're one of them. You're one of his disciples. You're one of the guys that, that we've seen with Jesus. And he denies it. Look what he says in verse 68. I neither know nor understand what you mean. In other words, I don't, I don't know Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I don't even understand. What, what do you mean you are, you're with the Nazarene? What, what does that even entail? I, I don't know. He's, he's clearly lying to try to keep himself out of whatever trouble he thinks might come if he is confronted with having a relationship with Christ. But you know, he just doesn't say no. He kind of even tries to twist it and, and twist the words and, and skirt around the, the answer. And we see that done all the time, right? They're having constant political debates on television. This is like a great political answer. I mean, a political strategist would, would really appreciate the answer that Peter gives. You know, he just doesn't say no, because you can't say no as a politician, because then you, you, you might not be able to change your mind later and work yourself around to it. You, well, I don't really know what you're talking about or understand the question or, or what kind of answer. I mean, this is a great political answer. And he gives it, and then he kind of pushes himself away out of the courtyard a little bit. He goes to the gateway. And when he gets to the gateway, the rooster crows. What a great warning for Peter. I mean, shouldn't that, that rooster crowing have been a, a wake-up call? What, what did I just say? How, how could I have just said that? I'm going to march back in there and I'm going to say Yes. Yes, I'm follow, a follower of Jesus. But that's not what happens. He kind of sneaks out trying to get away from the crowd, not wanting to be seen again. And the servant girl saw him again, verse 69. And began to say the bystanders. Now she's not only said it to him, she's saying it to the other people around him. Hey, this man is one of them. This guy... You know, they've got Jesus up there. I mean, you can even see, you know, kind of contrasting the scene. Up above in, in this large room, Jesus is being uh, physically assaulted. He's being verbally assaulted. And here is Peter down away from everything. And again, he's confronted with it. Hey, you're one of them. You're one of the guys that has followed Jesus. You're one of his disciples. We've seen you before. You've been with him when he was here teaching. You've been with him as he is doing the miracles. All of that is wrapped up in this phrase. But again, he denied it. He said, no, it's not me. I, I'm not the one. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not the guy that you're talking about. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, so the, the girl first looks at him and says, you're one of them. And he says, no. And then she kind of gets everyone else involved. Hey, I think this guy is one of them. And he says, 
no. And so a third time, now the whole group is there and they're looking at him. And they say, you know, we really think that you are one of his disciples. I mean, look what they said. Certainly, certainly you're one of them for you're a Galilean. I, I mean, we're all here and you're definitely from out of town and you have no other reason to be in this courtyard right now except that you follow after Jesus and that's where he's from and you look like him and you look like the people that follow him and you look like a guy that we've seen. Certainly, you're one of his followers. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. In other words, he he says, listen, if I know this guy... It's kind of ironic, isn't it? If I know this guy, let me be accursed. It's the strongest possible denial. Again, we go from politician denial, first denial, to this one is the strongest possible denial that is there. I, did, I do not, under any circumstances, know this guy. Let me be accursed. Curse me. Punish me, God, if I know this guy. That's the kind of thing that Peter is saying here. Now think about what he's got caught up in. This series of lies, three of them now that we have, he's denied Christ three times. And immediately the rooster crowed. I love it. Peter, or Mark rather, uses immediately throughout his gospel. We've seen that, I mean, just time after time after time if we went, as we went through Mark's gospel over the last year plus, time after time immediately, and here it is, and it, it's so appropriate, the urgency there, immediately, immediately when this happens, the rooster crows. Peter had become very arrogant. He'd become very arrogant in his relationship with Christ. He'd become arrogant in believing that he was above all of these things that Christ had said. If we were to look back just into verses 26 through uh, 31, we see that Jesus had already told him, you are going to deny me. Peter said, no, I, I would never do that. He says, if I must, as a matter of fact, this is verse 31 of chapter 14, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Think about that. The exact situation that he has been put in. Yes, that crowd is going to flip out if he claims the name of Christ. He is in the very place where they are trying Jesus. All they got to do is march him right upstairs with Jesus and he can come under the same condemnation that Jesus is coming under. And yet that's exactly what he said he would do. He said, listen, they can kill me beside you, and I will not deny you. And yet he passes up that opportunity three times. He'd become arrogant, not arrogant here so much as arrogant in those previous verses where he said, I will not deny you under any circumstances, no matter what happens. 
And yet here, when faced, given that opportunity, he does so. We have to be careful not to get arrogant in our relationship with Christ. There's an old hymn that says, wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever, you know, got to think, I am not an expert on hymns, got to think this, this idea is at play in that hymn. And we would say that, right? And maybe some of you would be honest enough not to say that. That would actually be better than if we were to say it. Wherever you lead, Christ, whatever you want me to do in my life, God, I, I'm, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to go wherever it is. I'm, I'm willing to listen when you call and respond appropriately to the call that you put in my life. God, I'm willing to open the Scriptures, and as I search them, and you speak to me through your Word, I'm going to be obedient. That sounds nice. But if we say that enough, sometimes we believe that until we have to answer that calling. We can get in our minds that we are so good in our relationship with Christ that we are too good to fall. That we are so smart, that we've learned so much, that we are so faithful, that we would never fall into the trap that Peter falls into here. And yet, friends, nothing can be further from the truth. Every day we are faced with these type of decisions. And I don't know about you, but... I don't have a perfect track record. And maybe you do. If you have a perfect track record of obedience to Christ, I'm going to cancel Todd from preaching next week because we need to hear from you. And we're all going to sit and jeer as you stand here with your perfect record. But don't we get to that place? Don't we get to that place sometimes where we feel invincible in our followership of Christ? Don't we think that we've got it down? That we're doing a good job? That we're following after Him faithfully? In our country and in our culture, we have it very easy. Following Christ is not a struggle, it doesn't require a, a large amount of, of real sacrifice. But what would be our answer if we had previously told Christ, no matter what happens, I will die with you rather than deny you? And then we're faced with that decision. But it's not even that rough, is it? Christ, no matter what, that's what we're saying. When we follow Christ, that's what we're saying. No matter what, we will not deny you. But the next time we're at work and someone is speaking inappropriately and we join in, we've denied him. He says, have, have the mind that's in me, 
have the mind of Christ. That's not the mind of Christ. The next time we, we are faced with our peers, with, with our friends or our family, with, with joining in on something that we know Christ has called us not to do, we're denying Him. Next time we put our finances above Christ, we have denied Him. We put our relationships above Christ, we have denied Him. You pick it, pick whatever it is. We take it and place it above Christ, we have denied Him. Peter takes his physical security and he places it above his commitment not to deny Christ. You could substitute anything else there. Anything else. I'll give you a good recent example. No one won the Powerball last night. $950 million. So today it's jumped to $1.3 billion. That amount of money is incomprehensible to me. I know there are people who can gain a billion dollars and lose a billion dollars in a week and they're still filthy, stinking rich and their butler still takes care of it. And I've thought, full confession, I do with half a billion, you know, time you pay the taxes and the payout, half a billion dollars, $500 million. So what would I do with it? You know, and I'm thinking, well, I would like to set up a scholarship fund here and things like that. And I'd like to think that I would do that, you know. I'd have a big fancy truck and all that stuff. And you know what? The next time anybody complained about anything, I would probably just say, you know, it's yours. And I could build my own church and could do my own thing, and if nobody came, I'd still get a good paycheck off the interest of my $500 million. <laughs> but at the same time, when you see people, because, I mean, there's never been uh, a, a lottery drawing like this. I mean, it's, this is incomprehensible numbers. It's just, it's, it's out of control, crazy amount of money will ruin somebody's life, most likely. But Look on social media at what people plan to do with their $500 million. You know, see where people's heart is? You know, see where your heart is? Think about what you would do if you won the lottery. I'm not encouraging you to go buy Powerball, any of that. If you win $500 million and you want to give us $50 million, you probably shouldn't do that either because that would probably mess us up. But a million we could use, $50 million over a year, you know, a million a year over 50 years or something, we could probably take that. But think about what you would do with it. Think about your heart. Honestly, not, you know, I would build a, a hospital for children. If you really would build a hospital for children in Africa, that's great. But are you just saying that because now the preacher said we need to think about what we'd do if we won the lottery. But what would you really do with it? Would you just not care anymore about anything? Just do whatever you want? That's a problem. Would it change who you are? Like, you don't know that it would because you can't imagine that amount of money. But, but do you think it would, well, it would definitely change me. I saw a post, and maybe it was one of you. If it is, I'm really sorry. I don't think it was. You know, basically, I would go to work, and if I won the lottery, I wouldn't quit my job. I'd go to work, and I would be a jerk until I got fired. 
Now, if that was you, again, I'm sorry, but think about what that says about your heart. Okay? I, if I was going to be a jerk, I would just quit and not go back because I don't care enough about the people or whatever. But think about what it says about you if that's what you would do. When we are a Christian, we make a heart commitment to Christ. He is in control of our heart. His word is what directs the desires of our heart. And Peter put his safety above that. Now that seems like an awfully good excuse. That's a pretty good reason to deny Christ, isn't it? They're going to take you and kill you if you say yes to any of these three times that they ask you about this. And yet his commitment was, Christ, they can put me to death, but I'll not deny you. Think about the emotional impact that has on Jesus when he hears those words from Peter, knowing that that's exactly what Peter's going to do. We must be careful that we are not arrogant in our relationship with Christ. That we think we, we've got it made so much that we would never get put into the situation that Peter is in. But, friends, we do it every day. We have the opportunity and we pass it up. Look at the second thing. We see that arrogance leads to our downfall, but we, we, we must be humbled. We must be humbled if we're going to be faithful witnesses to Christ. So look what happens to Peter. Immediately, the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Think about this. Peter denies Christ, and then what is it that, that comes in and convicts Peter of what he has done? It's God's word. See, our arrogance leads us to downfall, but it's God's word that comes in and points, our, points out our shortcomings. Our arrogance leads to downfall, but the word of God points us to our shortcomings. The words of Jesus correct Peter. He's just going along. You know how it is when you get caught in a lie? And especially when you're really deep in a lie. I'm not talking about the, the first little lie that gets things going. But I'm talking about when the, the snowball is just barreling down the mountain. You are fully into the lie. You forget about everything else, right? You forget about the truth sometimes. I mean, it's just not even there anymore. I would think by this third denial that Peter doesn't even know who Jesus is. He's forgotten about him. I don't, know, I don't know who he is. I mean, he's convinced himself of that. Remember, these didn't happen necessarily one, two, three, boom, boom, boom. We're, we're talking about over the stretch of the evening that these things are going on. And so by then, Peter is fully sold out to denying Jesus. And that's how we get when we get caught in a lie. That's how we get when we get those things rolling. But look what happens. Jesus' words come back to Peter. No, no, Peter says, I would never deny you. And Jesus says, yeah, you will. You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. That's why I love that 
that Mark uses the word immediately here because it's like when that third one comes out. The first two, they've been going on. It's been going on throughout the evening. That third denial happens, and all of a sudden, the rooster crows, and Jesus' words come to Peter's mind. God's word provides context for Peter, a reminder to Peter of his pride and his arrogance. We need to know that God's word points us toward our shortcomings. God's word provides us with correction, and we must listen. See, God's word speaks about a lot of things that you and I really like. Some things that we just, man, yeah, you know, go God, that's a, that's a, that's a good one, I like that. Now, sometimes it's, you know, I will destroy my enemies. And we're like, yeah, I got a lot of enemies. I like that. That's fine. Except for there's some other passages where he talks about some sins that you and I, you know, they're not really that big a deal. And yet, isn't it when we fall into those sins that God's word screams in our ear? If you're a Christian... If you know Christ, if you have a relationship with Him, it's those times when you fall into that sin. It might have been the one that you've been pointing out in everybody else. It might have been the one that you like to ignore. Whatever it is, when you fall into that sin, there comes a point, it's maybe not immediate, there comes a point where all of a sudden God's Word through His Spirit is just screaming into your head. And so we don't like that. I, I think that's why a lot of the people uh, in the world who really promote sin uh, have such a hatred for God and His Word. Uh, because it's God and His Word that's screaming in their ear, even in their darkest sin, that they're wrong. You, you look at people in our culture who are completely sold out to a sinful lifestyle. And look at how unhappy they often are. I think it's God trying to call them out of that, screaming to them to repent, turn from their sin. But for a Christian, I know that's the case. It is always the case that God is going to send conviction into the heart of those who are living in sin. It can be one sin, it could be a multitude of sin, but God sends correction through His Word. See, we have gotten to the point, again, we live in a culture that just celebrates sin so much that the world is telling us that all these things that God has said is wrong, they really aren't wrong. It's really okay to, to do these things. The, the times have changed, the culture have changed, we're we're living in a postmodern world. We're living in a world that doesn't have rules. We're living in a world where truth is relative. You can do whatever you want. And yet there is the voice of God speaking through His Word, speaking through His Spirit that continues to give us correction. And we would do well to listen. In fact, only in our arrogance will we ignore the words of God. Only in our arrogance will we ignore the words of God. 
We, we don't do it in any other way. You know, there are many so-called preachers today and many so-called churches that are promoting many things that God's Word has said are wrong. And they don't do so out of um, some fresh understanding of God's Word. They don't do so out of some desire to, to help people or be more trendy or be more cool for the culture. What they do is they do so out of their ignorance. That's why this word is the truth without any mixture of error. It is completely competent for the things that we need. And it's hard to hear sometimes because we're like Peter in that we, we like certain times where we can twist God's word or minimize God's word because it, it makes us feel better or we, it helps us with our friends or it helps us with our family or it or prevents us from being old-fashioned or out-of-date or whatever. But that's just simply not how it works. We only do that because we continue the pattern that Adam and Eve set in the garden of believing that we know better than God. And from that, we need to repent. We need to set aside our arrogance and set aside our pride and listen to God's word because it is pointing out our shortcomings. You know, I've taught in different settings and seminary settings and secular class settings and many of you are teachers and you probably would know this to be the case. There are normally two types of students when it comes to uh, your feedback. So a student turns in a paper and you know you get all kinds of you put all kinds of red ink on it or if you're grading it online you know you got the little drop boxes where you can do the correction. And I, I found I almost always get one of two types of responses from students. You either get those students who are thankful for your correction. They understand that as a teacher, professor, you're further down the, the academic journey than they are and that your feedback helps them get further down the journey and to get down the road better. And there are some students like that. And those are the best students and they should be applauded and they normally get the best grade. Even maybe if they don't do the best work just because they're nicer than the others. Not really. Never would do that, although you would like to do that sometimes. But then there are the other students. You know, the ones who, again, you, you, you pour over their work tirelessly, you, you give feedback, you give correction, you give encouragement, and they resent you for it. They hate it. They thought that when they turned it in, it was perfect. It didn't matter that there were, you know, 50,000 grammatical errors and 45,000 misspelled words, and they didn't really put two thoughts together um, uh, consecutively in sentences, and they really weren't even on topic to the assignment, but they should have got 105. So the question is, where are we in our relationship with Christ? Because you're going to get correction. If you're in a relationship with Christ, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to get correction. How are you going to deal with that? Because see, the world, when they get correction from God, they have resentment towards God. They want to write a nasty letter about God. They want to turn God into the principal or the superintendent. They want to get God's credentials pulled. They don't think God knows what he's talking about. But a Christian should be that student that comes back with that paper full of red ink and says, God, thank you for the correction. God, God I can't believe you didn't find more wrong. I... Compared to your majesty and glory, I'm, I'm surprised you didn't find more wrong with this paper. And God said, well, I'm just waiting for the second draft, and then I can write it up again. 
But I've met an awful lot of people that claim to be Christians that were the student that resented all of God's correction. Listen, it's hard. You know from school, you turn in something good and you get back all that red and it's like, man, I really thought I did better. And yet, when God gives us that correction, as burdensome as it is, as much as it means we may have to change our life, we may have to go in a different direction, we may have to do things differently than we're doing them, we should receive that correction with joy. Knowing that God has done it for our benefit. The Word of God is that thing that points out our shortcomings. And, and Jesus' words point out Peter's shortcomings. And then here's his response in the last words of the verse. He remembers what Jesus says, and chapter 14 ends with, and he broke down and wept. He broke down and wept. Being a true witness is about being humbled. And being humbled is about repentance. And that's what we see here. And he broke down and wept. This is where we see Peter's turning from his arrogance, turning from his pride, and being broken before God. If you want to be a true witness for Christ, you must lead a lifestyle of repentance. Now, there's good news to that. All of you have got a lot to repent for. So that's good, right? There's, there's something there. It's not like you. I'm telling you to lead a lifestyle where you go, well, I just really don't have anything to repent for. It's really hard to do what the preacher said this morning because, you know, I never mess up. I never do anything wrong, so there's nothing. No, trust me, you've got plenty to repent for. I've got plenty to repent for. You've got plenty to repent for. And so for Peter, this humbling experience where God humbles him by in this, this moment where he is just, just with his pride and arrogance denying Christ. I mean, you can just see this. No, I, I don't know him. I don't know who he is. I don't know what you're talking about. And then boom, God's voice hits his mind just like that. And he, he, he's just broken. And he begins to weep. Friends, that's what we need. What you and I need is an attitude of repentance before God. True witnesses of Christ are born in repentance before Him. Once Peter is broken, he is now prepared to serve. While in Mark's Gospel we leave Peter here broken and weeping, we know from John's Gospel, chapter 21, that he is restored because of his repentance. This this moment where he is broken and weeping is his sign of repentance. Now, I'm not saying that the only way you can show that you have repented before God is to, to be laid out at the front of this church crying, weeping. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what you do need, but, but maybe it's not involved. That Whatever it is, whatever it looks like for you, that's what we need. Where you and I are turning from our arrogance, we're turning from our sin, we're turning from our denial of Christ, and we're denying ourselves. We're turning from ourselves and we're following after Him. We're denying the things that we want, we're denying the, jo the, um, uh, the things in this life that we hold dear, we're, we're denying all the things that we think we need, and we're following after Christ. We're denying the sin that we love, 
I mean, we, we fall in love with, with sin. We rejoice in it. We celebrate it. Trust me, we give it a lot more time than we do the things of God. And yet Christ calls us to turn from our arrogance and our pride and believing that, that, that we know better than God. We know better than Him. We know better what's right and wrong. Turning from that, denying ourselves and following Christ. That's what Peter does in this moment. He, he is broken before God. And he's restored. True witnesses are born in repentance. It's the only thing that it can be. We can't be true witnesses otherwise. And because of Peter's brokenness, this is what happens. I'll read this for you. You don't need to turn there. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now think about that. Jesus knows what happened. There's a famous picture, and I, I can't uh, think off the top of my head where it is, but there's this famous picture of Peter down there in the courtyard, and at the third denial, when, when the words of Jesus comes to his mind, he looks up, and there in the distance is Jesus undergoing his trial in front of the religious leaders. It's, it's a beautiful picture. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, this is Jesus, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, ten, my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. He denied him three times. Three times he said, no, I do not love Jesus. He said to Jesus, I do not love you. Three times in that courtyard. Do you know him? No, I, I don't know him. I don't love him. Hey, you're the guy. You were with him. No, not me. And the third time, no, surely you're the guy that was with him. Let me be accursed if I know that guy. And so now in John 21, this is after the resurrection of Christ, and they're, they're standing there. and Jesus asked him three times. Three times he has the opportunity to recant and repent from what he had said before. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. And by the third time, he is grieved. Just as he had grieved Christ. Now, he is grieved because he has to answer this a third time, but he gets all three opportunities back. To claim the name of Christ, and all three times he does. Why? Because he is a man who is broken and repented before God. His heart was broken in Mark chapter 14. He repents. He weeps in front of God. And in John 21, he is restored. You know, this morning, if, if your arrogance and your pride has caused you to deny Christ. The Word of God, which you have heard this morning, is crying out to you and pointing out the error in a prideful life, the error in being arrogant about the things of God. 
And so if that is you this morning, the response that God is calling on all of us to do is to repent, to turn from Him, and to be broken. To be broken, not in necessarily weeping and crying, but to be broken as in our hearts are broken open, ready to receive what He has. You know, Peter goes on, if you're not familiar with this, Peter goes on to be the leader of the church. The great preacher who stands just a few verses after this in John 21, when we get into Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 and 3, he stands and proclaims to thousands of people, now you want to talk about facing death without fear. He preaches in front of thousands of people the gospel of Christ, calling people to repent. Peter, who now knows the power of repentance, stands before all of these and thousands of people come to faith in Christ. Peter knows the power of repentance and he stands and proclaims the good news of what Jesus has done. This morning, if you know that you have dealt arrogantly with God, that your pride has interrupted your relationship with Him, friends, the only response today is to repent. There's, there's not like a fancy 12-step program. There's not a Bible study you can come to or, or, well, I need to come to church more often. All those things would be great, but they're not the fix. What you and I have to do when we deal arrogantly with God, when we deny Him, is to repent. But here's the good news. Just like Peter in John chapter 21, when we repent, God restores. When we repent of our sin, Christ restores it's not a maybe. It's not a, well, let me think about it. Christ restores. Now, the, the relationships you have that you've broken, they may never be restored. The things that you've done in your life that have been broken, they may not be fixed and restored. But guess what? Christ restores you to a relationship with Him, and that is the best and greatest thing that can happen. And I'll just tell you from my experience, when people are restored to Christ, those other areas of their life begin to be restored too. They might be slow, they might be painful, and again, they may never happen. But it is very difficult to be restored to others. It's very difficult to be restored in relationships. It's very difficult to be restored in the church until you've been restored to Christ, and that only happens through repentance. You may say, well, pastor, I repented long ago whenever I came to Christ, and he forgave all of my sins. And that's the glorious truth of the gospel. But we are still called upon daily, hourly, to repent of our sin and to follow Christ. Because in my heart, every time I repent and I begin to follow after him, it doesn't take long that there's something pulling me again. And every time my eyes turn back, it, it requires repentance to once again turn and continue following Christ. And if we don't, if we adopt a pattern where we never repent before Christ, when we never turn from our sin, when we never plead for His forgiveness, we slowly have our eyes turned and we begin to walk away from Christ. And we continue on and continue on. And friends, sometimes we look and we are far, far away. When if in the beginning... When we began to turn, if we'd have said, Christ, forgive me, I want to follow you, we would have never gotten to that point. If this morning, if you feel like you're far from him, again, repentance 
is what it takes for restoration. If you want to be a true witness to Christ, you must be humbled before Him. We must repent of our sin. Will you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we are grateful. We're grateful that you've called us to yourself. We're grateful that you have offered us a relationship through Christ. God, we, we often stand arrogantly with our pride and believe we know better than you. We make commitments to you that we have no ability to keep on our own. We try and fail. Yet, God, I'm thankful that you restore. God, help us to be broken. God, help us to be God, destroy our pride. Destroy our arrogance. God, we want to be humble followers. God, not people who rest on what we've done or think we know better than you, but God, those who just follow you with a humble heart, realizing how unworthy we are to be called your children. God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are, and we thank you for what you're doing in our midst, God. We praise you for your goodness toward us in sending Christ, and we pray this this morning in his name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning. As we sing, this is an appropriate time for repentance. We've gathered together to worship, and guess what? How can we worship our God in spirit and in truth if we do not have an attitude of repentance and brokenness before God. If you're our guest, if you're not a believer, you may not understand any of what that means, but, but if you know Christ, you understand what that means. You know what it means to repent and be broken before Him. That's how you know Him. That's how you have a relationship with Him. But we can't worship Him in spirit and in truth without our hearts being broken. If you do not know Christ this morning, isn't it good to know that with a guy like this, and you may not know who Peter is, but Peter, he had a smart mouth, and he did a lot of really dumb things, and Jesus loved him anyway. He had a lot of pride, and he didn't always listen, and he didn't always understand, and Jesus loved him anyways. That might resonate with you. It does with me. If you don't know him, he restores people who are broken. Who are hurting. He gives hope to people that are lost. During this time, I'd love to share with you how you can know Him. But Christian, we must repent and be broken before Christ so that we can worship Him. This morning is your opportunity to respond to His Word. Would you do so as we sing?